During the past few weeks, it has become evident that the powers south of Israel are undergoing a metamorphosis and aligning themselves with the biblical script that is laid out in the prophets. Zechariah describes the scene in the Middle East as two mountains of brass, the biblical representation of flesh, having developed in the region surrounding Israel, between which the cherubim chariots will roar when the march of the rainbowed angel commences. We read in Zechariah chapter 6 verse 1, I turned and I lifted up mine eyes and I looked and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains and the mountains were mountains of brass. Zechariah chapter 6 verse 1. Well, Ezekiel describes these two mountains of brass in terms of the Gogian Confederacy to the north and a southern conglomerate in alliance with the merchants of Tarshish who protest against Gog's invasion of the land. Ezekiel 38 verse 13 describes Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof shall say to thee, which is the king of the north or Gog, art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? Well, this is also described in Daniel chapter 11, verse 40. Daniel describes these mountains of brass in terms of a king of the north and a king of the south, who provokes the king of the north, drawing him into the land. We read, at the time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. He shall enter into the countries and overflow and pass over. Later, Daniel identifies some of the players holding out to the south of the king of the north when he invades the land. In verse 41, we read that he shall enter into the glorious land, which is Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. So the southern confederacy is a mercantile alliance under the influence of the king of the south, containing Sheba, Dedan, Edom, Moab, and Ammon. We have explored at length the merchants of Tarshish and the young lions, which equate to Britain, the mother lion, and its former colonial territories, now independent young lions, including in their ranks America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, India, and South Africa. Well, John Thomas, when writing Elpis Israel in 1848, during the days of the Ottoman Turkish Empire, looked for developments which would see this group coming together under the influence of Britain. He wrote... But what is the lion power of which Ezekiel speaks? To ascertain this, we must direct our attention to the countries named in connection with the young lions. Of these, Sheba and Dedan are districts of Arabia. The men of Dedan are in the list given by Ezekiel as traders of the Tyrian fairs. The Dedanim carried thither the ivory and ebony which they procured from the isles to the eastward and precious clothes for chariots. Sheba carried the chief of all spices, precious stones, and gold. Dedan and Sheba were those parts of Arabia which lay convenient to the ivory, gold, precious stones, and spice countries of Africa and India. The Sultan of Muscat now rules the countries of Dedan, while the British have planted their standard on the soil of Sheba at Aden, the Gibraltar of the Red Sea, and Key of Egypt. The British power is the lion power of Sheba. That was written... Elpis Israel, 1848, page 467. Well, John Thomas correctly predicted the demise of the Ottoman Turk Empire and the occupation of the region by Britain, which occurred 70 years after he wrote and 100 years ago from our time in December of 1917. 
This gave room for the rebirth of the state of Israel, a preparatory move for the coming kingdom of God, described in the book of Revelation as the drying up of the river Euphrates in chapter 16, verse 12, where we read, The sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. The waters thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east, or the sun's rising, might be prepared. Well, once the nation of Israel was established in the land in 1948, Britain lost its direct influence in the region. The mantle was passed over to America, who would be the protecting lion for a period of time. Britain reintroduced herself into the region alongside her grown-up whelp when the Gulf Wars began in 1991, and has been there along with Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and others since that time to varying degrees. A conglomeration of nations rushed to the aid of Kuwait under President George Bush Sr., and then again after 9-11 when they invaded Afghanistan and subsequently Iraq to protect the Gulf states and consequently Israel from the aggression of Saddam Hussein. After a vacuum was created in Iraq, a new group, ISIS or Daesh, was formed in the region and violence spilled over into other countries such as Syria, bringing Russia into the region during Obama's impotent stint as president. The whole arena has been undergoing terrific turmoil since the British departure as the protector over this region. It is worth taking a couple of minutes to consider the background of the players. Egypt was a British protectorate until it gained independence in 1936, remaining a monarchy until 1953 when General Gamal Abdel Nasser took over during a military coup. His efforts to destroy Israel were routed during the Six-Day War in 1967, but he remained in power until his death in 1970 when Anwar Sadat took over. Sadat tried to destroy Israel again in 1973 during the Yom Kippur War, but was defeated and began the peace process under President Carter and with Menachem Begin. He was assassinated in 1981, after which Hosni Mubarak took over and ruled until the Arab Spring protest when he was deposed in 2011. The Muslim Brotherhood under President Morsi ruled until the military overthrew him in, 19, or in 2013 and installed al-Sisi as the president. To the east of Israel is the nation of Jordan, which became an independent Arab state in 1946 as part of the partition of the region by the UN. Its ruler was King Abdullah, who fought alongside Lawrence of Arabia to oust the Turks. He was assassinated by Palestinian terrorists in 1951. His son, King Hussein, took over and ruled during the 1967 Six-Day War when Jordan was defeated and lost the West Bank Territory, and again during the 1973 Yom Kippur War. He signed the peace treaty with Israel's Yitzhak Rabin in 1994. He died in 1999, and his son Abdullah took over the throne. Saudi Arabia is to the south of Israel. It became independent from the Ottoman Empire over a period of time from 1913 to 1925, when Mecca and Medina were incorporated into its territory. It was in 1932 that some of the areas controlled by the different tribal kings were unified under the name of Kingdom of Saudi of Arabia, and Abdul al-Aziz was proclaimed king. The nation was ruled by the Saud family since that time. In 1938, oil was discovered in the region, making Saudi Arabia the wealthiest state in the region. Recently, in 2015, Saudi Arabia launched air attacks on the Houthi rebels in Yemen, citing Iranian interference in the region. 
In 2017, Saudi Arabia isolated Qatar in an attempt to have it cut ties with terrorist organizations. And in 2017, King Solomon named his son Mohammed bin Solomon first in line to the throne, and Mohammed began his purge of the kingdom to consolidate power. To the southeast of Israel is the Kingdom of Kuwait, which gained independence from Britain in 1961. It is ruled by an emir. In 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait and annexed it. The emir and his government fled to Saudi Arabia. In 1991, the Gulf War saw the emir restored to power in Kuwait. In 2003, Kuwait was used as a base for the second Gulf War led by America. The Kuwaiti emir survived the Arab string, which followed, during a very rocky period of politics. Recently, though, Kuwait joined Saudi Arabia in an airstrike on the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Now, to the far south of Israel, occupying the ancient area of Sheba, is Yemen. It gained independence from the Ottoman Empire in 1918. In 1962, the royal family was overthrown, and the army set up the Yemen Arab Republic, beginning a civil war, where the royalists were supported by the Saudis, and the republicans were supported by the Egyptians. South Yemen gained independence from the north in 1967 when the People's Republic of Yemen was formed, but Marxists took over it in 1969, putting Yemen into the influence of the Soviet bloc. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union, Yemen reunited in 1990, although several groups have tried to establish an independent Yemen in the south. In 2011, the Arab Spring dramatically affected Yemen, and the president resigned. In 2014, the Houthi rebels took control of the north, and a new civil war began in earnest. The Houthis are named after their founder, and are predominantly Shia Muslims, and are backed by Iran, and are violently anti-West and anti-Israel. The Houthis are considered terrorists by Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Australia. Well, these are the nations that formed the Edom, Moab, Ammon, Sheba, and Dedan contingent at the time of the end. They have been created in dried-out wadis of the Ottoman Empire. They have been through much turmoil during their development. But what is very interesting is that three of them are still ruled by kings. They are kings of the south, under the influence of the merchants of Tarshish, also unified under a monarch with the exception of its eldest son, America. Now we see them coming into the role described by the prophets. Writing before the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, John Thomas stated the following, The lion power of Britain has not yet attained to the limit marked out for it by the finger of God. The conquest of Persia by the autocrat will doubtless cause England to conquer Afghanistan, to seize upon Dedan that she may command the entrances of the Persian Gulf, and so prevent him from obtaining access to India either by land or sea. Possessing Persia and Mesopotamia, the, the apprehension of his pushing still further south and perhaps establishing himself in the northeastern coast of the Red Sea and so taking them in the rear or gaining access to India by the Straits of Babel el-Mandeb will also be a powerful motive for the merchants of Tarshish and its young lions to take possession of all the coasts of the Gulf of Persia to the Straits and thence to Suez, which... The lion power will not only become the Sheba and Dedan, but also the Edom, Moab, and Ammon of the latter days. For in speaking of the events of these days, the prophets refer not to races or men, but to the powers on territories designated by the names of the people who anciently inhabited them. 
Thus, the prophecies concerning those countries in their latter-day developments have regard to the power to which they belong, and which, I have no doubt, will be the British, which, together with the autocrats, through henceforth though always rival dominions, will endure until both powers shall be broken up by the Ancient of Days. Elpis Israel, 1848, page 469. Well, this we find fascinating. Although not directly ruling these areas, the Western influence has come for the exact reason as directed. Russia has gained hegemony over the areas of Iran, Syria, and Iraq. The Western Tarshish nations have shored up their influence in the south, along the coast of the Gulf of Persia to the Straits and thence to Suez, exactly the area John Thomas described. Well, during his presidency, Barack Obama reduced American influence in the Middle East significantly. His impotence with both Syria and Iran caused great consternation among Western allies such as Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan, who fear Iranian influence over the area. Egypt has been battling the fundamentalist Muslims in Sinai after overthrowing the Muslim Brotherhood. Saudi Arabia has been engaged in war with the Iranian-backed Houthis in northeastern Yemen on Saudi's southern borders. The Christian Science Monitor ran an article under the headline, Is This the Saudi Arabia We Wanted?, which stated U.S. policymakers have long sought a more assertive Saudi Arabia, but there is a growing concern outside the White House about the ambitions and untested Saudi crown prince, who is increasingly confronting Iran. From the outset of his presidency, Donald Trump has signaled his intention to refashion the Middle East policy in a big way and to return Saudi Arabia, sidelined in President Obama's regional vision, to a preeminent spot in U.S. policy. Mr. Trump broke decades of presidential precedent by making Saudi Arabia the first foreign designation of his presidency. He has seemed to issue, through speeches and tweets, an American carte blanche to Saudi actions, both in the region, as the Saudis have ramped up efforts to counter Iran's rise, and domestically. Well, the result of Obama's step back, and then Trump's blank check, are being seen, as the article continues. Trump's unquestioning support and evident encouragement have unleashed the Saudis to do things we've longed hoped for, namely to assert themselves in the region and take on more of their own security, says Aaron David Miller, Vice President for New Initiatives and Middle East Program Director at the Wilson Center in Washington. While this is in keeping with the picture painted by the scriptures, where the southern host is a force which offers protest, albeit without effect. Saudi Arabia is leaving behind the lame duck status and becoming a force in the region countering Iran. However, the article went on to lay out concerns some lawmakers have when it stated, But now that the president has emboldened the prince to launch into these actions, what you're hearing increasingly is remorse about what we wished for, he adds. No one knows where all this is heading, but it's pretty clear that it's not, it's not all the potential outcomes that are in our interest. Clearly, the White House, with the president in lead, is delighted with the Saudis' new assertiveness, particularly when it comes to efforts at countering Iran. But that unvarnished enthusiasm does not extend to either the State Department or the Pentagon, where support for Saudi actions are tinged with concerns about where, that, where what some see as adventurism could lead, and what could result in instability could cost the U.S. End quote. The problem? 
Well, the Saudis are pushing back at Iran, Syria, Lebanon, and by extension, Russia. They are sliding into the mold of the King of the South conglomerate, who has been pushing at the Northern Powers since the Ottomans ruled the Middle East. The other area involving Saudi Arabia is Lebanon. The same Christian Science Monitor article stated, Only days after Lebanese Prime Minister Harari appeared suddenly in Riyadh and went on Saudi television to announce his resignation, reading a statement that accused Iran of meddling in Arab politics, Tillerson included Saudi Arabia in a stark warning to regional actors not to undertake actions that could threaten stability of Lebanon. The United States, he said, cautions against any party using Lebanon as a venue for proxy conflicts in a manner contributing to instability in that country. That was a November 10th statement. State Department officials later confirmed that the secretary indeed included Saudi Arabia in this warning. End quote. Well, the State Department has been at variance with the presidency on policy many times. The State Department attempted to stop the recognition of Israel by the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. in 1948 until President Truman called him directly and ordered him to do so. However, under Trump, things are changing, as the article points out. Sure, the Secretary of State has made a point to communicate his differences with what some of what Saudis are doing, But the real question is, so what, says Mr. Miller, who has served as the Middle East policy advisor in both Republican and Democrat administrations. Does it really matter what Rex Tillerson says or does while the president and his son-in-law continue to demonstrate that they are in with the king and the MBS, both in terms of their anti-Iranian initiatives and their role in a grand peace plan, he says. Maybe in the old days of U.S. foreign policy, what the Secretary of State said and did mattered, he adds, but this is the new days, end quote. Well, Israeli Prime Minister commented on Harari's resignation in an interview with the BBC's Andrew Marr on November 5th, where he spoke of Harari resigning, he said, basically, that's because Hezbollah took over, which means Iran took over. And I think this is a wake-up call for everyone. It says that the Middle East is really experiencing. It's experiencing the attempt of Iran to conquer the Middle East, to dominate it, to subjugate it. And I think when the Israelis and Arabs, and it is all the Arabs and the Israelis, agree on this one thing, people should pay attention. We should stop this Iranian takeover for your interests. End quote. Well, what has been unifying influence for some of the key Arab states has been the actions of Iran. The same article, uh, the Christian Science Monitor, stated that Mr. Miller underscores the reality that Saudi Arabia confronts on an increasingly worrisome security environment outside its borders. Some are among those legitimate security concerns, he adds, none surpasses the challenge of Iran's expanding influence and its particular, in particular, its evident success at fashioning Hezbollah into a formidable regional proxy. Pointing to the rocket attack this month on Riyadh's airport that the Saudis claim was carried out by Iran and Hezbollah-backed Houthi rebels in neighboring Yemen, Miller says the establishment of ballistic missile capability on Saudi Arabia's border would be an ominous destabilizing factor in the region. It appears the Iranians are trying to turn Yemen's Houthis into the equivalent of what the Hezbollah represents to Israel's borders, Miller says. Of course, the Saudis want to figure out some way to prevent that from happening. 
well, Reuters, reported that the Saudi Arabias see Iran's involvement in Lebanon as a declaration of war. It stated just the other day, Saudi Arabia accused Lebanon on Monday of declaring war against it because of aggression by the Iran-backed Lebanese Shiite group Hezbollah, a dramatic escalation of a crisis threatening to destabilize the tiny Arab country. Lebanon has been thrust into the center of regional rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran since the Saudi-allied Lebanese politician uh, Hariri quit as prime minister on Saturday, blaming Iran and Hezbollah in his resignation speech. Saudi Gulf Affairs Minister Al-Sabhan said the Lebanese government would be dealt with as a government declaring war on Saudi Arabia because of what he describes as aggression by Hezbollah. End quote. So, this week also saw revelations of greater military intelligence ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia battling this common enemy, Iran, through the proxy of Hezbollah. During his speech on the Balfour Declaration centenary dinner in the UK, where he spoke after British Prime Minister Theresa May, Netanyahu stated the following. Now, there is good news. Alongside Egypt and Jordan with whom we've already made peace. Others in the Arab world are moving forward. They recognize that Israel is not their enemy, but their indispensable ally in fighting militant Islam. They view Israel as their partner for ensuring a peace and a future and security and prosperity. It's time that uh, the Palestinians will embrace this approach too. And if they do, they will find in Israel and in me an enthusiastic partner for building a peaceful and prosperous future for both our peoples. It's within our reach. I think it's getting closer. Now, you doubt it. You don't really believe what I say. But you don't know everything that I know. (laughs) And I'm not going to reveal it now. Many others around the world already recognize the benefits of peace and security and prosperity by cooperating with Israel. They seek to benefit from our intelligence prowess in fighting terrorism and our innovative technology in building their economies. People are always amazed at that, but you know, you'd think that it would be obvious that if we liberated our economy, which we did, this is what happens. We untethered the genius and enterprise of our people to become a rising power on the world stage. Is the growing alliance between Saudi Arabia and Israel what he's hinting at? We wait to see. But there are hints. CNBC published an article entitled, entitled Growing Ties Between Saudis and Israelis Could Be an Ominous Sign, where it reported, the winds of war in the Middle East, specifically pitting Iran against Saudi Arabia, are turning into a full-blown sandstorm. The latest evidence of this comes from a surprising source, an interview in a Saudi newspaper. No, a relatively short interview in an Arabic-language paper in Riyadh isn't usually a big deal. But it is when it is an interview with the chief of staff of the Israeli Defense Forces, Lieutenant General Gaddy. The interview alone is a big news. It's the first of its kind with an Israeli military official in the Saudi press. But it's what 
General Gaddy said in the interview that really made history, and it made it clearer than ever that Saudi Arabia and Iran are marching ever closer to direct confrontation. End quote. Well, during the interview, General Gaddy stated the following. With President Donald Trump, there is an opportunity for a new international alliance in the region and a major strategic plan to stop the Iranian threat. We are ready to share intelligence with Saudi Arabia if necessary. There are many common interests between us. Iran seeks to take control of the Middle East, creating a Shiite crescent from Lebanon to Iran and then from the Gulf to the Red Sea. We must prevent this from happening. End quote. Well, the article continued, the creation of a once non-existent ties between Saudi Arabia and Israel has been widely reported, but never publicly confirmed by either government ever since the Iranian nuclear deal was signed by the U.S. and other key Western nations. Neither Israel nor Saudi Arabia has yet confirmed widespread reports in the Middle Eastern media that new uh, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman recently secretly visited Israel in September. General Gaddy's very public interview in a governmental sanctioned newspaper is a relatively massive public admission of allegiance between former sworn enemies, end quote. Well, in Saudi Arabia, one would expect the religious extremists to put up a fight for this new alliance, except that while all this has been going on, the crown prince has been conducting a crackdown on extremists and a purge, as the article goes on to state. Crown Prince bin Salman recently, or apparently, isn't giving any quarter to the extremist old guard. In addition to plowing ahead in his hawkish stance against Iran, he's also cracking down on extremist clerics in the kingdom in a way that no Saudi leader has ever even tried. At the same time, the prince has been promoting clerics who speak tolerance for Judaism and Christianity. End quote. Well, the article points out the connection between all these events when it states there is a method and a correlation to all of this. Bin Salman clearly understands that to fight Iran effectively and earn the crucial support he needs from the U.S. and Israel, he must present the world with a clear difference in culture and intentions than Iran. If the Saudis continue to abandon the long-running race to lead the world in Islamic extremist and violent piety and show a willingness to recognize and respect Israel, that will be a stark enough difference for anyone to notice. And there is a time element here, as both Saudi Arabia and Israel are clearly seeing the current Trump administration in Washington as at least a silent partner in all of this. But they also know this can change, so the time to move is now. The priorities the Saudis are making make sense in a context of the more bitter and much longer-running Sunni-Shia war that's been going on and fits the start since the 632 AD. Hatred for the U.S. and Israel may seem supreme in radical Islamist cultures, but the Sunni-Shia divide is worse and a lot older. And with the wars in Syria and Yemen showing no sign of slowing down, hostilities between the Sunni standard bearers in Riyadh and the Shia rulers in Tehran have never been more likely. 
In the past, Israel has always been a potential deal-breaker for any coalition of Muslim countries engaged in an alliance with the U.S. As Saddam Hussein, for example, tried to destroy the coalition against him in the First, World, or First Gulf War by launching Scud missiles at Tel Aviv in 1991. That effort failed, but it was one of the most serious challenges to the war. And President George H.W. Bush administration fought hard to keep Israel out of the war to preserve a loose Arab coalition against Iraq. Now, Saudi Arabia has gone many steps further than just hoping to keep Israel on the back burner. This newspaper interview is tantamount to openly flaunting a growing partnership against Iran. The Saudis, long the biggest bank in the Middle East and the controlling force behind OPEC, are making it clearer than ever that it's okay to partner with Israel. On its face, that's a peaceful and modernizing move. Hopefully, it will endure and yield dividends long beyond the current political climate. But as anyone who knows the history of the region will tell you, right now, the growing ties between the Saudis and the Israelis could be an ominous sign that war is coming. End quote. Oh yes, it is. The war is described in Ezekiel 38. Daniel 11, Joel 3, Zechariah 14, otherwise known as Armageddon. And we are witnessing all the pieces coming together and alliances being formed that, although required by Scripture, would have seemed impossible a few years ago. The angels have been at work preparing the nations, and so we too must prepare ourselves. So we look with excitement at the events that herald the return of Messiah, who will ultimately defeat the Russian Confederacy on the mountains of Israel. When this happens, the nations we are discussing today will submit to the rule of Messiah, as is described in the Psalms, chapter, or Psalm 72, verses 10 to 11. The kings of Tarshish and of the isle shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. And again, the prophecy of Isaiah, the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. Multitudes of camels shall come up, cover thee, dromedaries of Egypt and Ephah, all they of Sheba shall come. All they shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth praises of Yahweh. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto thee. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister unto thee. Thou shalt come up with acceptance upon mine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Isaiah 60, verses 5 to 7. We look forward to that day. And we are witnessing a glimpse of the preparation in the events forming today. We long for the day following the trials of the invasion when the kingdom will be established with great excitement. For the Bible in the News, this has been Jonathan Bowen joining you.